Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mockery Cushion. I'm Faye Lenner. I'm Ben Maloney. I'm Hugh McCarran. And I'm Rick Benjamin over here on the other side of the ocean. Today, we are joined by a wonderful guest. We have US-based musical historian and conductor, Rick Benjamin. Hello, it's great to be here. So Rick, could you please tell everyone a bit about what you do and why you have such a passion for it? <laughs> sure, well, um, I'm a, a full-time music historian and conductor. I'm probably best known for my work with a repertory ensemble called the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra. Um, but basically, for 35 years now, since my student days, um, I have had a mission to uh, find lost American scores, music of all kinds, basically orchestral music, though, crawling through attics and basements, uh, looking for discoveries, old theaters and things, um, and bringing my findings to the orchestra to perform them and record them. Uh, and we've been on this sort of crazy quest now um, since 1986. I started the orchestra at the Juilliard School um, back during my undergraduate days. Uh, and we've been rolling all this time. We're on hiatus now, of course, as the rest of the performing arts world is due to COVID. Um, but that's essentially the job. Um, I do work for the orchestra. It is an actual institution. Um, but um, essentially, I am freelance. I do conduct other orchestras as well. And over in your neck of the woods, the Irish National over in Dublin, I've come over there a few times, and orchestras in Scandinavia and uh, all over the place. But Paragon's travels have taken uh, me and the orchestra to seven countries and 49 states. Uh, we played in most of the major concert halls in North America now, and um, which one's looking forward missing? to back to it. <laughs> which state is missing? We're missing Idaho. And... Um, I'm not sure what's going on out there or what happened. I think it was something I said on the Today Show once about Idaho, and uh, I've been banned from the States somehow. <laughs> uh, but, uh, for some reason, we have never played in Idaho. We've been in Iceland, but we have never been in Idaho. So, I mean, think of the indignity there. I mean, there even are some good uh, potato-based rags we could be playing, but <laughs> they have none of it. So, There's a rack for everything. There, there is, actually. <laughs> In our, our, our collection of orchestrations, we have over 800 of them from the period. And really, any subject you care to think of, it's, it is covered in a syncopated fashion. So. What's the strangest title of a rag that you've ever heard? Oh, boy. Uh, the strangest one. Um, something called Frangipani. Rag, I think, is the strangest one I can think of off of my top of my head, which I'm told is uh, some sort of pastry, I think. But anyway, uh, there is a uh, there's a microbe rag, uh, there's an epidemic rag, there's an influenza blues from 1918. Uh, so essentially, if we could, if we could eat, we we'd have a whole theme concert ready to go. But uh, we need a COVID rag. <laughs> yes, yeah. well. I'm on it. Composers <laughs> are on your end of the line, so get cracking. <laughs> for it this time. Yeah. Oh, ouch. Um, so, and a lot of what you do is um, 
in facing faces, right, with them um, playing playing to movies and playing. Right. Yeah. Um, we do. We've we've played more than seven hundred programs accompanying films uh, mm. over all this time. In fact, I uh, unfortunately I seem to be dreaming in black and white now. It's it's really odd. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, back in the uh, later latter part of the nineteen eighties, uh, because the instrumentation for the orchestra. Uh, is the same both for music that was played in the theaters and ballrooms uh, as was played in the early days of the cinema. Uh, we started being asked to accompany films uh, as a kind of a sideline uh, and the presenter would have the film and they'd have the musical score and we would show up and rehearse and play. Uh, but then in 1992 something amazing happened. Um, I was sitting in my office and the phone rang and it was the uh, the chief librarian of the music division of the Washington DC public library. Uh, and he said, Rick, we were down in the basement yesterday. I love calls like that. And um, he said, we found uh, 26 crates of silent film orchestra music from the old Capitol theater here in Washington. It's been sitting down there since 1942. No one's opened it. Um, we're moving into a new building we need someone to take it, uh, would you be interested? And of course, by that point, I was already standing at my desk with the phone, <laughs> getting ready uh, to head out there. And uh, basically, the, uh, the story was that whatever institution could promise to do public performances with the materials would get it. So they asked Eastman School, and they couldn't promise. They asked a few universities, they couldn't promise. Uh, but we could. So I indeed went down with the truck, great big you know, panel truck and, a, and spent a day and a half loading that stuff. And it was the scores for over 900 silent films uh, going back to 1912. Um, and so from 1992 forward, we have spent a lot of time accompanying films with their original scores. And uh, there's a bit of, on YouTube of us, you can see us doing things. And uh, uh, But it's really fascinating. It's, it's actually... Um, that melding of, of sight and sound from that period is, is just magic that you can't describe. And it only seems to work in a large auditorium too, uh, especially a historic cinema, which is largely where we do these performances. So we'll have 800 people, you're in the pit with the original score for Charlie Chaplin's whatever, and the audience is sitting there, uh, and then the magic happens. So uh, it is a lot of fun. It's the most difficult conducting that I've ever had to do, and I've done ballet and opera and everything. Um, because live performers are somewhat pliable, even if you're not doing their tempo with the accompaniment. Um, you won't hear about it until later. With a, with a film that's going, say a 45-minute film, when you get out of sync, the audience knows when the sword fight is still going on and the love music is, you know. <laughs> right. So it's actually quite difficult to do and, uh, and somewhat, somewhat stressful, too. The, the guys in the pit say they never see me sweat as much as when I'm doing a feature film. Yeah. Uh, you you know, don't have any kind of, I mean, I guess there was no click tracks or things back then. You're just going No, off. you didn't do anything like that in those days. And uh, from what I gathered from reading, there, there were a lot of journals or magazines uh, devoted to this uh, uh, work back in the day. Uh, and I collect them and I read them. Um, the, the kind of tightness of synchronization that we're used to as people who watch television and modern movies wasn't expected in the 1920s. I mean, they got pretty good, but that really, you know, cutting off here and starting this and that is, uh, is something that you can only do 
with a produced, totally produced product on a soundstage. Uh, but I try and get as close as possible because audiences have that expectation that, you know, this, the iris is closing, the music cadences stops, okay. and, you know, the next few begins. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty difficult to do. I don't know if you guys have heard, we, we have a, a great recording uh, called Pioneers of Movie Music. It's 80 minutes of, uh, of music played by various, uh, by various composers of that period. And uh, we used a bigger orchestra too, about a 20 piece orchestra for that. So, anyway. that with horns and things as well. And have yeah. yeah, yeah, because in the larger cinemas here, we had what was called the full orchestra, which uh, doubled the strings, added double reeds, so one oboe, one bassoon, uh, two French horns, second clarinet, uh, and sometimes harp. And uh, so there are quite a few film scores in that, that uh, bigger setup. Yeah. And in some of the cities back in the day, in the, in the 20s, um, had enormous orchestras. You know, 55-piece orchestra in a, in a big city was not unusual. Um, the, uh, the Roxy Theater in New York had a 110-piece orchestra in the pit playing three times a day. If you can imagine that. I mean, it was the largest orchestra on the planet. It's bigger than the New York Philharmonic. Uh, imagine these guys down there sawing away for their cartoon and the Western and everything else. Uh, <laughs> Anything that was thrown at them. Yeah. yeah, and it was a high watermark for, for uh, uh, employment, too. Um, because, I mean, there were literally, I've, the numbers I've come across, somewhere between eight and 10,000 orchestras of the United States uh, during the silent era, just playing for cinema. Uh, so, I mean, it's an army of people doing that every day. Uh, and indeed, that formed the core of the, uh, the symphonic uh, tradition in the U.S. in the post-silent era. Uh, some of our great conductors uh, and musicians, players, came out of the silent film pits. I mean, Eugene Ormandy of the Philadelphia Orchestra was a fiddle player at the Capitol Theater in New York. That's how he started his music career. Uh, and there are lots of stories like that. So. I was just thinking... Um... Uh, would you mind just running us through the stamp, the the basic makeup of a standard, you know, ragtime orchestra? I guess for people that are unfamiliar with the concept. Yeah, well, the we call it a you know we call these ensembles ragtime orchestras, but back in the day, uh, that term wasn't used at all. In fact, I've never seen it on a historic document or a score or a photograph or a description in a newspaper. Um, the the group would have been just called an orchestra. Uh, yeah. In the U.S. anyway, um, in 1900, there were only two or three symphony orchestras in this whole country. So uh, if you said orchestra, what you meant was small orchestra, meaning 10 or 12 players. Uh, and of those, there were lots. Uh, there were about 30,000, 35,000 venues that maintain what we would call a small orchestra. Um, and the instrumentation was standardized way back in the 1860s. Uh, publishers all latched onto the same thing and music arrangers, but it's essentially a, a, the small setting would be a flute, doubling piccolo, clarinet, two cornets, slide trombone, uh, percussion, on one player, uh, piano, and then strings, one on a part, first violin, second violin, viola, and cello. Uh, and literally there were tens of thousands of things published and arranged for that combination. Uh, it was called 11 and Piano, and uh, that was the, the basic makeup of uh, 
as I said, tens of thousands of American orchestras. And of course, and all the surviving orchestrations of Joplin, which is uh, right. what we're about and Joplin to... had an orchestra like that, too. Mm. And uh, actually, a couple of different times during his uh, rather sad life and career. But uh, that was the basic setup. And, uh, you know, in the, because these orchestras were expected to cope with everything that came along, uh, all, everything in the line of popular music, you know, in the 1860s, they'd be playing mazurkas and playing uh, uh, quadrilles and things like that. In the 1870s, they would add the three-step. Uh, in the 1890s, the two-step, and so on and so forth. Um, by the middle 1890s, when ragtime started to come along as a, uh, as a popular uh, fad and uh, a middle-class sensation, uh, the orchestras had to cope with that, too. And, uh, and so the pieces were scored for that combination, or in many cases actually composed originally for that grouping of instruments, because it was just what, what you did, it's what was out there. Could you tell us a bit more about your work with Scott Joplin's compositions? Sure, well, an amazing thing happened in my second year at Juilliard. Um, I managed to find the music library of one of the first recording companies, uh, the Victor Talking Machine Company. Um, and um, all of their material, their orchestral arrangements for their sessions uh, were being sent to a landfill. And I managed to get the, uh, get this collection for basically the cost of moving it. Literally, they were throwing it out. And um, mixed in with all this material were quite a few Scott Joplin pieces. Um, some of them one-of-a-kind things. They existed in piano form, but not in orchestration. And um, that's how the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra got started. I brought this material back to school with me, uh, and we started performing and reading through these huge stacks of music. Uh, but I had known about uh, Joplin through, of course, being a pianist as a kid, going through the, the early part of the 1970s where everyone was playing that. But seeing, um, seeing his music from this larger perspective of, of an orchestra, a small orchestra, was something that was eye-opening to me and many people. Uh, and uh, through the years I became interested in all of his other works, it became quite clear that he was a classical composer who uh, also wrote ragtime. Uh, I mean, that, that to me is a very good way of describing it. He studied it. with a German piano teacher, right, in his, in his right. life. He, was, he had a very heavy grounding in classical music. He went to the George R. Smith College and, and studied you know, counterpoint and things like that. Um, and we know some of the books he was reading, the theoretical books, and he was studying uh, classical music in New York again when he arrived in 1907. He was taking lessons again. Uh, so, um, and we know from inventories of the, uh, of the Joplin materials that, that were still around even in the 1950s, there was a piano concerto, there was a symphony, uh, there was some chamber music, and so oh, on. So there was a lot of other material there that is now lost. Uh, so anyway, he, he spoke to me in a, in, in a wider way than the people who just like to play the entertainer on the piano. Um, I got to see other, you know, other aspects of his artistry as a composer, uh, and that led me to great dissatisfactions with the treatment of his opera, Tremonitia, which is a fragmentary work. Uh, it, all of it existed until 1962. Um, if you've read my book on the opera, and I think you have uh, uh, the essay, um, one of the attorneys for one of the estates throughout 
all of the materials for the uh, for the opera, orchestration, staging, choreography. Uh, all yes, yeah, so tell us a little bit about that experience when you when you bumped into him. Um, well, yeah, it was it was a wild thing. Uh, Paragon Orchestra and and uh, and I were doing a concert. Speaking of live radio, um, it was in 1988, and it was uh, a live radio program, one hour, on uh, uh, the New York Times radio station, which was WQXR. It was the, the classical music station in New York City. And they did some live shows. And this was a live broadcast from South Street Seaport, which is a, a giant outdoor museum with sailing ships and a pier that goes out into the water. Um, and uh, so we were performing this concert, both for about 8,000 people who were there, and then live on the air, which was very neat. And uh, we finished this, it was a hot July day, and I was backstage, and uh, just getting ready to take my suit off and get back into street clothes. And the stagehand came up to me and said, oh, there's someone here who wants to talk to you, uh, and he looks like a lawyer. <laughs> and of course, you know, I mean, well, what's this about now? Uh, America being famous for its uh, the litigious nature of everything. Uh, and this gentleman was ushered in to me. He asked me to not reveal his name uh, because he didn't want to be forever known as the man who threw out all of Scott Joplin's music. But he was an African-American attorney who had worked for the one of the many tangled estates that had the control of the Joplin materials back in the 60s. And this was before Joplin had really come to international recognition. And as this gentleman said to me, you know, in 1962, nobody knew who Scott Joplin was. Yeah. Uh, but he did describe to me the, the, the boxes of things that he had put away as well as he could remember. This was, you know, 25 years after he had done this. Um, but he did, he did say that he didn't, because I was sort of probing him about, oh, did you see, you know, what, what kind of instrumental names did you see? And he could only remember simple things, violin, and he said he saw cornet, things like that. So, but that's the answer to what happened. It's been kind of a, a you know, Bermuda Triangle, Sasquatch mystery of American music as to what exactly happened to Scott Joplin's materials, because there was a... a by all descriptions, an entire cellar full of stuff uh, right. up in that his final house up in Harlem, and then there wasn't, and nobody knew what had happened. So now we know at least that it's yeah that it is gone.
extracts you'll hear in this podcast are from the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra's recording of Rick's reconstruction of Tremonisha. There, we heard a clip from the end of the overture. And, th- and this wasn't, Tremonisha wasn't Joplin's first venture into opera, or at least musical. That's right, yeah, he had two other, at least two other larger scale works. There was a ballet, uh, which came out right around 1900 or 1902, uh, called the Ragtime Dance. Um, and that was something that he had actually staged in uh, in Missouri. And we have the uh, and then there was a first opera called A Guest of Honor, which Joplin uh, and his own company actually did tour. Uh, in fact, I found going through <laughs> tens of thousands of old newspapers on microfilm, uh, which is why my eyesight is so bad. Hello. Um, that, uh, <laughs> opera had actually been performed in quite a few other places than had been originally supposed. He had actually actually toured it for several weeks uh, before disaster struck. And one of his, uh, one of the box office agents ran off with the proceeds. And uh, which I should mention was a common hazard of the early show business. You had to really have a dependable person. Loping with the profits, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> did, was, did he perform it for the president one one time or something? Well, the the thing, there's a theory, and my friend Dr. Edward A. Berlin has this theory that the opera Guest of Honor was written to commemorate uh, President Theodore Roosevelt's invitation to Booker, Booker T. Washington, the uh, right. the famous black uh, civil rights activist, uh, the invitation to dinner at the White House, and that was mm-hmm. in 1902, and. Uh, so there's some theory that Ed has that that's that that's what the connection is, and it could be. I mean, he he could explain it to you better. <laughs> yeah, get him on the next show. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, apparently, yes, it's a, it is a, it's dedicated or based on an incident that occurred uh, with Booker T. Washington. Of course, the discovery about what happened to the original materials for Tremonisha then spurred you on to. Uh... That that certainly was. You know, knowing that this stuff was gone. And, of course, Joplin made this very weird, wonderful, posthumous pop stardom uh, phase in the 1970s, early 70s, which was crazy. I mean, he here's a guy who had been dead since 1917. He hadn't produced anything. Um, and who was, frankly, not well-known when he was alive. He wasn't a, a nationally famous person like Sousa or Victor Herbert. Um, he was known in the cities where he worked and well-regarded, but he wasn't a national figure at all. In fact, going through, again, thousands, tens of thousands of pages of contemporary magazines and newspapers, I've only seen him mentioned uh, probably a dozen times in, uh, in the media, and very small things, too, very, very little things. So um, you have to get into microfilm of historic black newspapers, the small newspapers in small towns, where you actually see what he was up to. Uh, and that's a fascinating subject. But in any event, um, I had to, I was too little to have seen uh, some of the efforts to uh, to revive Tremonitia uh, back in the 70s because uh, Joplin was the, a huge, hot commercial property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everyone wanted to be playing his music. All the symphony orchestras here were coming up with arrangements of the Maple Leaf Rag and so on and so forth. Is this all following Rifkin's early recordings? Right, yeah. And I don't know what it was like in Great Britain, but here um, the the ragtime revival was a real mania. 
I mean, you know, uh, the entertainer was a was on a top ten on AM radio. You know, with current rock and roll things. I mean, it was amazing. You would go to a shopping mall, uh, and the, the music system, the sound system, would be playing Scott Joplin music as you walked around to buy your whatever. Um, I would I mean, love that. It was really crazy. If you look at old episodes of the Muppet Show, you know they they work in. All, all, you know, they've got ragtime going on. Uh, oh, so we still get it in adverts all the time. TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah adverts. It's in a cat food. Yeah, it's in a cat food advert. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, because it's good music too. It's good, and it, it, it you know, it, it moves people. So, but anyway, so this was a huge craze, and imagine the excitement of, of performing arts uh, managers to discover that here we have. Um, not just these small pieces that are so delightful and people like so much, but oh my gosh, there's a major, there's an extended work. There's an opera by Joplin, which at that time they thought hadn't been produced. It actually had been, but that's a story for another day. Um, uh, we have to get to get cracking here and get this thing on the stage because you know, I mean, this is huge. Well, Joplin is hot. This is you know, this this is the beginning of classical crossover too, which is a you know, if you've been around arts management, that's a, a huge thing. You know, classical crossover. You think people were kind of an, expecting um, a prequel to, to Gershwin or something. It, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, anyway, Joplin was hot. Here's a supposedly unproduced major work. Let's go for it. Well, there were, there were problems. Nobody could find the orchestration. Nobody could find the staging. Nobody could find this stuff. Um, there was still at that point uh, what we would what we would call a Joplin estate, called the Stokes Trust, controlled them, controlled all this stuff, um, and they, you know, they decided that they would uh, start commissioning people to make arrangements of this opera so they could produce it finally. Uh, and so the first attempt was with uh, with a fellow uh, named T.J. Anderson, who's a, a, an academic composer, um, and he created kind of an interesting thing, and that's. The supposed premiere of the work was given at Morehouse College in 1972, I think. Um, and, um, you know, people were excited about it because they'd never heard the music at all. But the estate was not satisfied with this arrangement for whatever reason. Um, so then they commissioned William Bolcom, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning composer, to come up with another arrangement. Yeah, it was done, I think, just once at Wolf Trap, and uh, there doesn't seem to have been any, you know, recording made of it or anything like that. Right, and then we come to, finally, uh, the estate commission, Gunther Schubler, to come up with an arrangement of this thing. It was really rather wild. I think he took something like three weeks to, to score this entire opera. I mean, it wasn't a big, didn't spend a lot of time on it. No one was interested in the history or the, uh, the origins or the purpose of this piece, or knew anything about African-American show business, which is where the piece was born, really. And Joplin was intimately involved in, in show business of black America in the 19th century. Um, they were just interested in getting something on the stage really quick so that they could sell some tickets, make a TV show, etc. So, Because right, that one has banjo and all sorts of stuff going on. In yeah, it. it's really it's really nuts. And... Um, so I had I had heard bits and pieces of it because they would play it on the radio. Uh, in the uh, so the Schuler thing was premiered in Houston in 1975, mm. and um, I was familiar with it just from hearing bits of it on classical radio. Thinking, hmm, well, I'm not really going for this at all. 
Um, and then eventually, quite a bit later, I might have been a student at Juilliard by then, but I don't exactly remember, um, that performance had been videotaped and our public television station in New York played the whole program. Um, and at that point, I knew the opera very well because I had acquired a copy of the piano vocal part, which was the only thing that actually survived from Joplin's time. And I was playing on the piano and singing and, uh, you know, imagining what it would be like in, a, in an old music hall with a pit orchestra and uh, uh, wooden uh, scenery and canvas drops and, you know, simple, sweet production. And here comes this thing on my television. This really is looked like, uh, uh, you know, Peter Max, if you remember that uh, sort of iridescent, weird paintings as a set. And uh, <laughs> crocodile guys in crocodile costumes crawling across the stage. And uh, <laughs> it changed the uh, reharmonized sections of the music. It's like, wow, where, you know, this is giant blues chord in the overture that's not in the overture. It's suddenly like it's out of no place. It starts doing that. Um, the instrumentation, of course, was strange. It was very big and heavy. There were horns, there was heavy brass. I think there were a couple of trombones and tuba. Um, anyway, um, and, the, and the, it just was a very strange and surrealistic thing to watch this. Like, what, you know, what, if, what are these people trying to do? They're trying to add gravitas where none is needed. It's not that kind of a show. That's just not what it's about. So, and then a few years after this experience on television, I was asked to be a consultant in a production that was being done in New York with the Schuler score. Uh, and it was the same sort of thing. Uh, I just, I'm watching this unfold going, what, you know, why are you turning Scott Joplin, who has a very distinctive voice and, a, and a, something to say, and the only document coming out of the African-American post-Civil War period is the only opera about this. Why are you trying to turn this into, into uh, Verdi anyway? It's, it, and, and torturing everyone in the process. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And, uh, you know, no one, of course, in, in that production would listen to me anyway. Um, so I determined at that point, this is about 1993, that I would go and create a, a forensic reconstruction, search the world for every single bit, molecule of information or, or score of this opera, and put together a forensic reconstruction. And I spent something like 15 years working on this thing. It was a long time. Uh, I actually went to uh, Arkansas and met with the Joplin family. They're still down there in the Red River uh, section of Arkansas and Texas. That's where the opera is set. The family is still there. Um, and put this thing back together. And among the many things that Schuler had done was uh, major alterations. He removed the dialect. If you look at the score, Joplin's score, um, he actually has all the characters singing in Arkansas dialect of 1880 for the Schuler production and everyone who's used that material since then. Um, that's completely gone. Everyone sings in standard English. It's very strange when you read Scott Joplin, who has left written you know, there's written prose. He wrote a, a manual of playing ragtime, and it's in this very standard, rather heavy uh, English. You know, it's very formal, very florid English. So he obviously didn't speak in Arkansas-ese or write that way. He was creating his opera to memorialize his people. This is what he was trying to do. So to actually just scrub that already takes one whole layer of meaning off of his work. 
So I put all of that back in, spent a long time working on this thing and uh, put various parts of the opera, the instrumental stuff into Paragon concerts for a long time. And then finally in 2003, we got the, uh, the San Francisco Stern Grove Festival decided to produce it, an actual authentic circa 1911 performance of Treatment Nation. And uh, it went very well and the rest is history. We continue to do, we've done about a dozen of them now in different places. Uh, and back in 2011, uh, recorded the work with a major box set recording. So that probably used up every one and zero in all of your computers. So we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> and for anyone interested, there's a book. Rick wrote a book as well about the uh, about all of this stuff, um, mm -hmm. which comes with the recording, right? Right. Yeah. Well, the book with the with the set. Yeah, you guys should have it. I mean, it's. Uh, I'm sure it's available there. The university must have it, or or you could even buy it at some point. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> So anyway, that's that's what that's what we've been doing, and uh, th that particular um, work has been well received. the The critical community, all the major critics, lined up and said, "Wow, yeah, you're onto something here." Mm -hmm. And uh, and the academic uh, people came aboard too. The musicologists at the big universities, by and large, have said, "Oh yeah, <laughs> well you know, <laughs> you actually do it." <laughs> The way it says, it actually sounds right, and it works on the stage. So, so there you have it. Yeah, I mean that's one thing. Whoever I've uh, played this stuff to, you know, they always say you'd almost never guess, but that combination it just works so perfectly well. It's so yeah. uh, it has it has a, a real, I guess, nostalgic sound of the period. Right, it? naturally. Yeah, and I mean it's the sound that that Joplin was. Used to, used to hearing in terms of the instrumentation, the accompaniment too. I mean, when he went to the theater that he was hearing small orchestras, uh, it's debatable whether he ever actually went to the opera um, because the, uh, I don't mean his opera, but any opera, uh, because the, there were only a few companies in the U.S. during his lifetime. And uh, for example, the, he was living in New York the longest period, 1907 to 1917, um, and the Metropolitan Opera, really the only company, uh, did not allow African-Americans in the building. So whether he actually ever saw Lohengrin or, or Traviata or, or anything is, is pretty debatable. Uh, but the sound he certainly had in his ears was the sound of the music hall of vaudeville and, and minstrelsy, because he actually did work in those worlds, too. He was a, he was a theater musician. So... Uh, it all it all makes sense that he was creating this opera not to try and bust down the doors of the Metropolitan, which he wasn't even allowed to come into anyway, but rather create a, a work uh, to provide uh, singing opportunities for African-Americans who could not have an operatic career. There was just nothing they could sing. There was no repertoire at all and no place where they could sing it, um, but they could in a music hall. And so he decided to build this pocket opera that could be done in, in local music halls with a cast of about 20 people and an orchestra of 12. And it was a pretty good plan. It, it would have worked, I think.
just heard an extract of the chorus. We're going around from Act One. So I remember there was there were rumours flying around when people first started uh, looking at this thing that it, that it was never produced, never performed, never right. heard at the time. But that's not entirely true, right? Because I remember you saying you you found some, you dug up some other contemporary reports that suggested. Yeah, just... yeah, I did find that he had um, he had actually performed if not the whole opera, some major excerpts of it uh, at, a, uh, at a small theater in New Jersey in 1913, summer of 1913. And um, there isn't any doubt about it. I mean, there, there are advertisements in the newspapers showing these performances uh, were occurring. And then I found in, the, in the, the showbiz magazine, which is called the New York Clipper, uh, that he had indeed actually given these performances. This wasn't just an advertisement that no one showed up to. Um, there was a, there were actual performances because it was logged into this uh, this newspaper that actually logged metropolitan performances. And, uh, so it did happen. Uh, whether or not he liked what happened is you know up to anyone's interpretation. I suspect that he didn't like what the way it went, as many of us don't when we see our works on the stage. It's like oh my god, I got to go back and rewrite this, or. Uh, whatever, I need another soprano to sing the lead. And uh, so he, it is true that he didn't talk about that performance or write about it anyway. We don't see anything in the newspapers, the black newspapers of him saying, oh, we had this great show in Bayonne the other night. You do see this, these odd things of people, uh, you know, dramatizing it as if he sort of took Chumanisha to the grave as a sort of dying, uh, you know, wish that it never quite, went where he wanted I mean, right that yeah that make a great film <laughs> well that this you make a great point Hughes. someone actually needs to make a serious at least a documentary about scott Joplin. it hasn't been done really? uh, there was a feature film about him in the early 70s called scott Joplin, uh, and it's terrible i mean it's really <laughs> it's too big. Well, they, they had Billy D. Williams starring as Scott Joplin, and he was very good. And they had Art Carney uh, of Honeymooners fame as John Stark, his publisher. But um, the entire, uh, all of the facts of his life were completely changed and distorted. And as Hollywood does with pretty much any kind of topic in those days, um, anything to do with composers. If you watch any like movie film of the ragtime world. <laughs> Probably even worse because, you know, the, the movie Scott Joplin, you know, they show him at his, uh, in his uh, booth at the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904. And of course, you know, he may have walked through the World's Fair, but he, did, you know, we know what displays and exhibits were at the fair and he, he was not there. They show him dressed regally in a thousand dollar suits and his fancy house and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and, um, you know, I know from, from looking at the places where he lived that even throughout his life, he lived in horrible places. He was very, money was tight always. And, uh, you know, the, the place where he lived long, the longest in New York on West 29th Street uh, was essentially a slum. I mean, I looked up the building records of, of, the, of this building, the specifications in the Department of Buildings for this place. It's been torn down for years, but this is where Scott Joplin lived. It's where he wrote Tree Manisha. It didn't have running water in 1910, 1911. You know, you had to go outside to a pump in the back. And there was a privy back there, too. You can imagine that. 
Um, so now the rest of New York had running water and electricity and, oh, that was the other thing. The house didn't have electricity either. They, they lighted it with kerosene. Uh, so it was a man who really was not economically successful. And um, you see him going around even giving, you know, he would travel around the city giving piano lessons and he would accept used clothing as payment and things oh, like yeah. that. So uh, anyway, so when you watch the movie Scott Joplin, you see this rich guy and he's world famous and presidents and kings are slapping him on the back. He just, you know, the question that has to come to mind is, well, what happened to him anyway? Why, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's such a shame that that is such an inaccurate portrayal of his life. Yeah, no, it's 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 there's something actually mean about it too. Uh, I mm. guess the producers didn't really anticipate that, but or, or that wasn't in their minds when they were doing mm. it. But to, but yeah, I mean, I think we're all going through life looking for truth because that's the only way we can actually know where we are, where our consciousness is floating in the universe. Ooh, that's really deep. Mm. And, uh, you know, the only way to know that is to know what's true and what isn't. So why not show this guy creating these beautiful compositions who is struggling? That's not only is it true, it's a better story. extract of the mini ballet Frolic of the Bears from Act 2. Now as you know Rick we intended to put on this opera whilst at university. Asked everyone to play in the orchestra they'd all agreed. We'd signed people up for auditions bearing in mind the auditions were going to be done blind so we wouldn't see mm -hmm. who was auditioning. All of a sudden it just got very out of control and we heard from other people that the opera was cancelled. The society didn't even tell us. Yeah, before it was discussed with yeah, us. Yeah, they didn't discuss it with us. It just got cancelled. And the chair of the society even quit over the choice of this production. And yeah, we got a lot of backlash for it. And a lot of people who didn't even know what the opera was about or were basically having a go at us for trying to tell a story that we shouldn't have apparently been telling and it just got very out of hand very quickly and there were lots of accusations being thrown around you can almost hear the frustration <laughs> in your voice it was, it was frustrating <laughs> because we'd spent so much time on it and we've been we'd been in touch with you rick and you'd even you'd spent so long preparing the parts and everything and then all of a sudden it was just all cancelled yeah. bearing in mind they then didn't put on another show that year so that's their loss <laughs> but honestly yeah, it's very puzzling. I mean, and without knowing, you know, having a lot more information, it's hard to know what was going on there. But, um, you know, this, this opera is, the, the themes are so uplifting and so universal. Uh, it's about education. It's about uh, the uplift of, of helping people in your community. 
Uh, it's about a female who takes charge of a lost group of people and saves them. I mean, it's, it's, it's modern in every sense of the word. And uh, why this should be controversial in any way is just absolutely puzzling. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is set in, in a plantation or a former plantation in Arkansas in the post-Civil War era. But I think as we are now in the 21st century, and everyone keeps telling me that we uh, need to find a post-racial world, which I think is a good idea, mm -hmm. um, you know, again, to, to not produce an opera by this downtrodden, immensely gifted black man seems to be a, a very, very strange and... Yeah. And it almost seems like the same people who are constantly reinforcing the idea that these things need to be heard. Sometimes the same people that shut them down mm -hmm. over fear of ben, how they're received. So what would you like to sort of outline what we think or what, what the motivations really were behind the people yeah, I mean, who um, didn't want this to go Yeah, it would be country. interesting, and if I can, I will comment on them. But, it, uh, yeah, to not – I don't really know what, you know, what was even said against the yeah. work. Well, yeah, the, ben, ben, do you want yeah. to explain that? Well, I was just going to say the key word that you mentioned there, Rick, was that it was set on a former plantation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people were maybe initially scared about the – um, the context, maybe even just through misunderstandings. Of... Yeah, and it's it's set after the date of emancipation as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's set yeah. in the 1980s. Yeah. Yeah, and I think people just, without knowing a lot about the topic, just jumped in mm. and yeah. just voiced an opinion rather than learning all the facts and then voicing <laughs> their opinion. Yeah. And that is uh, one of the great problems of the world. <laughs> <laughs> one of the other things um, with True Manisha that I've encountered more recently as well is obviously it's kind of the only, or the only account in music anyway of someone who yeah. could relate to it. Someone um, who actually lived through it. Yeah, exactly. People have done tried to do productions more recently where they've changed things, changed things about the yeah. plot or the music and so on, which in a way I find slightly more disrespectful to the message mm -hmm. of the opera than just just doing the original, doing right. it as a form. Well, yes, as our stage director for my production, who is a wonderful African American uh, theater director from Minneapolis, said his name is Richard Thompson. Said. To change this negates Joplin the man. That's a direct quote, negates the man. Um, so uh, who, who are we to change it? I mean, you know, I don't like Mona Lisa's smile, but if I show her with my paints and start touching it up, <laughs> I mean, that makes me a complete idiot. And yeah, probably yeah. the rest. Well, in normal times, yeah. if I say I'm protesting, I could get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> But these are stories and, and works of art and, um, you know, to, it's almost like defacing them to yeah. disrespect the, what they meant to the composer. You know? Right. It's better to leave things alone, actually, I, I think, mm. than to actually change, change yeah. them. And and people, yeah. people try to retrofit these pieces of art to, in order to fit their own narrative. Contemporary fads or narratives. And, uh, mm. yeah. 
yeah, again, we get away from the truth. What is what is the truth of this work? And again, if for people who actually know the work, I mean, the, the themes you can't argue with unless you're a complete lunatic. I mean, you know, who doesn't like education? Freedom. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> who doesn't like, you know, it's hard to argue with it. But again, it's 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 presenting this to people who are not initiated and that's um that is a hard thing to do mm. um, so i salute you for making the effort to do it and uh, you know on behalf of scott joplin whose family i know well uh we salute you was a section of the chorus Aunt Dinah. What's different, Rick, about putting on an opera like Trimonesia? Um, you know, an opera production company, a regularly established one, um, they have their templates and their working methods and, you know, whether they're doing a German opera or a French opera or Italian, whatever, they, there is a certain production pattern that, yeah. that they use. You can't do that with Trimonesia. It's, it's truly a one-of-a-kind. Now, back in its time, in the early 20th century, there were other somewhat similar works in the African-American theater. I mean, there was another opera composer working uh, who Joplin was, was talking to, a uh, black guy in Harlem uh, who was having works produced. Um, and there were um, uh, musical comedies, uh, black produced and cast uh, things on the boards that were running uh, so there, there really was an active world of, of black theater going on, and that's where this piece comes out of. Um, but those conditions uh, don't exist in your modern opera house, you know, and they want to put their own gloss on it. And once that happens, you lose the work. The work becomes swallowed in the production value. And, uh, you know, it's really about choral singing. <laughs> that's, what the, that's what this piece is about. Choral singing in community, and uh, and Trimanisha singing in standard English, so, but no one else. That's the other thing. If you've looked at the score, Trimanisha and her student, Remus, sing in standard English, very refined, fine English, and everyone else, because they are in ignorance, are singing in dialect, and that's a device. So we, I mean, you take that away, you know. And of course, even even use of I guess you could almost call it light motifs as well. Yeah. Um, or certainly yeah. in the case of representing um, the community and and the yeah. educators are separate. I mean, he even use, uses, I guess, different musical styles to represent that in a way as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's you could you could spend and I have done it uh, years, literally going through this, uh, mm. working on it and and talking, you know, going as I did go to Arkansas and talk to folklorists down there who explain the origins of goofer dust and all these folk things that pop out of here. Now, uh, Joplin and his black audiences in 1910, 1911, they would understand these references. The city audiences of African-Americans in Chicago or New York had come from the deep South recently. The great migration took place in the 1870s and was at its height about 1910, 
with folks, black folks leaving Alabama and Mississippi and going to the city. Uh, and they would have, there was, that was the audience. They would get this new experience of sung theater, no dialogue, uh, but they mm -hmm. would understand these references to these folksy things they knew about, about these jinxes and curses and not putting the hat on the bed because it's bad luck and, and all these sorts of things. And, uh, and so there's a lot of context there. Where their enlightened uh, living came from, essentially. Right. Yeah. There's just so much context to it, but you have to know about it and you have to explain it to people and performers. I'll tell you, my first company uh, in, in 2003, when we were going to perform this work, there was uh, the, the first or second rehearsals disgruntlement, uh, and the chorus uh, it was a big problem. And I was brought in to speak with the chorus. They didn't want to sing the dialect, the do's and dats and them knows this kind of stuff. Um, and I said, "Well, what's what's the problem anyway?" And they said, "Well, we don't. We feel that this is demeaning to do this dialect." Uh, and I just kind of scratched my head a little bit, and I said, "Well, how many of you folks have been in Porgy and Bess?" Every single hand went up. Big smile. Yeah. And it, well, said you have been singing dialect written by those two great guys from the hood, George and Ira Gershwin. You know the Gershwin. <laughs> Have another bagel and we'll write some dialect and you can say dems and those and you know. So they've been singing fake black dialect and been totally, totally happy with it. Yeah. And so here we have this this dialect written by a man who spoke it, who lived there. This is an autobiograph autobiographical opera. Uh, and suddenly heads are going up and down and oh, okay, I never thought of that. And what do you think of um I know there are some theories floating about um, uh, that maybe some of the characters related to people in Joplin's life, or certainly yeah. true Misha, anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, the um, it seems as though, uh, and then again, this is something Dr. Berlin has posited, and I think he's right. It seems as though the character of Tree Manisha is based on Joplin's wife. Uh, his second I mean, wife. Freddie, yeah, uh, because the dates all line up, uh, and... Uh, you know, and she they, died quite young, right? Quite soon after their wedding. She did. They had been married for only a matter of weeks. In fact, yeah. she died on their honeymoon trip. She caught some sort of fever uh, and, uh, and passed away. And uh, so the, it is thought that the opera is a memorial to her and that the character of Tremonisha is Freddie. Yeah. Um, and, and he wrote uh, a waltz. Um, a waltz. For her as well, right? Was in, in right, yes, Bethina, mm. which is a little bit of a mystery too. Uh, people wonder whether the photograph that's the cover art of the piano sheet for that is actually a photo of Freddie. Uh, there doesn't seem to be, at last I heard, and I spoke to Dr. Berlin probably six months ago, uh, whose uh, his new edition of The Life of Scott Joplin is now out in Oxford University Press. And uh, he had found a, f a photo of Freddie's family from the period that's very interesting but so far as far as i know no one has seen a picture of her some people think that that photo on the cover of, uh, of athena is 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 her but i'm not sure about that and that was a slightly recluse period for him was it that he after yeah, she... apparently so it's not you know you don't find him in the uh you know checking in with the black newspapers and telling them what he's doing and, right. uh, it's going to be a as one would expect, a quiet yeah. time. He did apparently go up to Chicago uh, not long after that, in 1906, to find out what was going on at the Pekin Theater, which was 
the country's really first uh, black-owned, uh, managed, and staffed uh, music hall, and it was in Chicago, called the Pekin, and uh, they had a wonderful fellow there named Joe Jordan, uh, who became the, one of the country's first black millionaires through songwriting royalties. He was the music director there, and every two weeks he wrote a new a musical comedy from the ground up, all the songs, rehearsed it, and and performed it at the Pekin. And um, Joplin went and stayed for a while to see what was going on uh, with the scene there. And incidentally, the Paragon Orchestra and I have recorded an entire album of the music of Jordan and the Pekin Theater. So uh, some interesting stuff uh, to ponder there, too, if you ever want to hear what was happening happening in that exciting spot. That's the wonderful thing about music. There's There's so many vistas to explore. It never gets tiring, and and there's always something new to hear, and new. And it's every day is something new and wonderful. Oh, that was a lovely <laughs> message. Oh, that's a great way to end. What a great closer. And what a wild way to end any piece, right? A, 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 an extended stage work with something slow and poignant. Mm. And I always think Manisha shows a bit of a, she shows a bit of a different side in that last one, doesn't she? Yeah, she lets down her hair a little bit. Well, the thing of it is, it's interesting, and I don't even know if I got into the book that this that is a traditional African healing dance. After a war, after a battle, the village would have this dance, this slow, sensuous dance with everyone touching. And that's where that comes from. I mean, it's, it's out of ancient Africa, uh, transported to 19th century Arkansas. Uh, so if you hear us do it, we're playing it slowly and sensuously. When you hear Schuler do it, it's like, it's like, no, please. This is a slow dance. It's even called a slow dance in the title. Oh. Is there a, can I ask you, is there a, is there a romantic subplot there or with her and um, Remus? Remus and Remus? Is that not to be revealed? Speculated on it is, I think it almost happened in my company once, but the opera. We can't tell their spouses about that, though. That's another story. Um, <laughs> um, there, there could be, actually. There could be. I, I, I guess it's...
you know, it's like that. It's like the the classic film thing. It's almost left unsaid, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Doesn't need to be said. Yeah, in different in different performers, we've had a couple of different remises, and uh, the the different the degree of uh, closeness of those two performers has varied too, depending on who's doing it. We we started out Indira Mahajan was singing Trimanisha for us, and then uh, and then uh, Anita Johnson later. So. Again, it gets in the chemistry of, per of performers too, but you could be onto something there, Ben. Well, we'll look into it. If you'd like to find out more about what Rick does, you can follow the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra on Facebook. Or subscribe to them on YouTube. Thanks for listening, guys. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's cheerio from me. <laughs> For someone who teaches children, I don't actually like talking that much. <laughs> it just Come makes on. me stressed. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. You can put the mask on if that helps. <laughs> <laughs>